Today's reading comes from Matthew 5, 1, 2, and 8. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they, so, for they shall see God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, and as you're seated, I've already introduced myself. I'll invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we come uh, as people that are uh, profoundly broken, in need of your grace in every way, Father. Though we need your love, we need your, your joy, uh, we need the wholeness that only Jesus can bring. God, would you work to, uh, to do a couple of things this morning, to expose who we really are before you? And to, to end that nakedness and, and being exposed to drive us to Jesus, Lord, that we would find rest for our souls, hope in him. Lord, would you exalt your son and work powerfully by your Holy Spirit, we ask in, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So this morning, as I often do, I have a question for you. Um, and the question is this, are wholeness and happiness related? Are wholeness, on the one hand, and happiness related to one another? I think if we believe our advertising, uh, we would say, yeah, they're pretty related. They're pretty related. Whole products or, or pure products are advertised all over the place. And they're advertised all over the place, not neutrally, but usually as a step in the right direction towards a happy and satisfied life. For example, for example, um, when I walk into Whole Foods, say versus no frills, Whole Foods is in the title, see that, right? Versus no frills, I'm, I'm happier. I'm happier in no frills because the advertising and the ambiance of Whole Foods, it speaks to my soul. It's telling me something that's awesome until I see my bill. And, and, and then, I'm, then I may be a little less happy than, than I was when I first walked in. Actually, as a society in Vancouver, though, we value wholeness, I think. And we're, we're even these sort of devotees of purity, devotees of wholeness, chemical-free Pure food, uh, organic food, no additives, uh, cruelty-free even. These are all monikers that we see advertised all the time, right? And they're things that, are, again, aren't neutral, but are, are trying to lead us to some sort of a good life, a happier life, a better existence. And nearly everywhere we look, we can find advertisements not just for wholeness in our food, but for wholeness for us personally, to find wholeness for our, our souls, Retreats of various kind, they offer wholeness as a means uh, to happiness. Now, don't judge me too harshly, but as I was researching for this uh, this week, I even found out that there are a couple here in Vancouver, psychedelic guided retreat centers that you can go to. So for, for, for drugs that are not made uh, illegal in Canada, there's a couple of them. You can go to these retreat centers and have a guided psychedelic experience. For what purpose? To find wholeness. To find wholeness by, by gaining insight into who you are. And finding wholeness in, in you. And it's not just that. There's all kinds of retreats that offer this. There's, of course, counseling. There's various therapies offering insights into who you are so that you will be able to find the wholeness that's so elusive in your life and find the happiness that you're looking for, that you're, you're longing for, the satisfaction you're seeking. So I think wholeness and happiness are certainly related. And I think that probably everybody here thinks that, and certainly Vancouver, the city around us, thinks that even if they don't, connect them directly all the time. And there's lots of suggestions in the culture around us for finding both of those things, both happiness and wholeness. So here's a question. We keep coming back to this kind of a question in our introductions. Will they work? 
Are those suggestions enough? Can we find wholeness and happiness in those ways? I think the answer is no, not, not in what we're looking for. And Jesus actually has a very unique and very particular thing to say to people like us who are seeking wholeness and who are seeking happiness this morning. And there's an invitation from him in the sixth beatitude, an invitation of hope, of wholeness, and of happiness. Look at Matthew 5, verse 8 with me. Jesus speaks into our need and he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see, wholeness and happiness are both here in this verse. As we'll see in a moment, purity of heart has something to do with with wholeness. And seeing God has to do with the ultimate satisfaction and joy that we were created for in relationship with him. And if that strikes you as really strange today in Vancouver in 2019, don't worry, we're going to jump into it and try to unpack it. I want to make that clear for you. So we're going to look at these things this morning in three parts. We're going to look at number one, purity defined. Number two, we're going to look at purity created. Number three, purity rewarded. So purity defined, created, and rewarded. Oh, losing my notes. So let's jump into our first note, uh, uh, first point, purity defined. Just look again at Matthew 5, verse 8, and notice that first part. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's the pure of heart who shall see God. But what is, what is purity of heart? What is that? Well, the New Testament scholars, Dale Allison and W.D. Davies, they give a pretty awesome definition of of purity of heart. Uh, We'll come back to and we'll try to expand a little bit as well. They say this. They say purity of heart is to to will one thing. It's to will God's will with all of one's being. The question we should ask is where did that definition come from? Did they just make it up? And they're reading the Bible one day that I know. I'm just going to write this down. No, it came from somewhere. It came from Jesus. Because throughout the Sermon on the Mount, as we move on from these Beatitudes, we'll see that Jesus talks a lot, a lot, about a greater righteousness that includes the whole person, from the bottom of their feet to the tops of their head, the, the inner and the outer person, desiring and acting in unity together according to the will of God, according to the purposes and the goodness of God. And in fact, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is actually extremely critical of those who perform religious actions only externally. There were those uh, in Jesus' day that were awesome Christians. We describe them as the awesome Christians that we see today. They seem to do everything right. They tithe. They worship. They sing loudly in the front of the the front rows. They're involved in community groups. They go to church, the, uh, the church gathering on Sunday mornings. But Jesus is critical of them because he says, look, you do all these external things. But I see your heart. There's a division between the inner and the outward piece of person, and I'm not having it. So actually, if you look at Matthew 23 to 25 to 28, chapter 23, 25 to 28, you'll see his criticism of these religious leaders uh, at the time of Jesus. He's not pleased with them. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
I think we find it pretty easy to get behind what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders. Why? Because we don't like hypocrisy. Who here likes hypocrisy? You know, it's like, oh, there's two hands in the back. That's weird. Just kidding. There weren't two hands in the back. We don't like hypocrisy, right? We don't like it when we see it. We don't like it when we see it in civic leaders. We don't like it when we see it in our judges. We don't like it when we see it in our religious leaders, right? We don't, we don't like hypocrisy. It's awful to see. But notice this. Jesus is speaking of something that's even deeper than hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is, of course, defined as saying one thing and doing another. Jesus is actually driving hypocrisy a level deeper than that. He's talking about a hypocrisy between your actions, the external, and your heart's desires, the internal. A lack of wholeness in your person. Because let's face it, some of us, some of us are amazing at doing the right thing on the outside. We're amazing at doing the right thing while inwardly kind of hating that we're doing it. Grumbling about it, not really wanting to be doing the right thing. And there's a division between the inside and the outside. You see this a lot in kids, actually, don't you? When they're, they're being required to, to behave according to a certain standard that their parents are imposing. And they're, they're responding to, to that, you know, corralling of their behavior. And maybe they're externally obeying it. But writ large all over their face is their anger and their unsubmissiveness. You know, they're doing that whole, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting on the inside, but dad, I'm standing on the outside. Right? It's written all over their faces. The thing is, I think you and I are like those kids. We just have a lot better facial control. We have better facial control. We can smile while we're doing it. And remember, purity of heart is to will one thing, God's will with all of our being. Because God's standard of wholeness and of purity is deeper than what you and I are accustomed to thinking about. It's much deeper. Jesus is relentless on this point. He's relentless on it. In the Sermon on the Mount, he drives home over and over again our lack of purity of heart by exposing the desires within us. Exposing the the evil desires that we have on the inside, even when we do the right thing on the outside. So he gives a couple of key examples later in the Sermon on the Mount. So look at them with me. First in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 22, Jesus exposes the inner desires. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Okay, the external action, right? And whoever murders the external action will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, oh, anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It's not just murder that's the problem, it's hatred. And that comes from inside of you. Or he says again in Matthew 5, 27 to 28, as you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And we can get behind Jesus, I think, and recognize adultery is a problem. You know, that's not a good thing. But Jesus points it deeper. All right. Tanner's up there. Okay, I'll keep going. Uh, <clears throat> I'll just read you the slides as I always do, and it's going to be fine. Um, Jesus is pointing out that it's not just adultery that's the issue, right? It's the, it's the desire on the inside. It's the lust that produces the, the adultery that's uh, causing this, this issue from us. See, Jesus wants us to obey him with the depths of our being, our being willing and loving and acting out what is right and what is good, but not as we define it, but as God defines it and loving it and living for it. You know, a great summary text to show the way that God wants our whole heart in obedience in this purity of heart before him is Isaiah 64, verse 4. And that text says this. I love this text. It says, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. God's looking at the heart. God is an awesome father. 
And he doesn't want a reluctant obedience from his children. He wants a deep obedience that comes from the heart from those who call him father. I'm experiencing something of this for the first time in my life right now. I'm, I'm a young dad. Uh, so all of you pros, you know, give me some grace here. But I'm a young dad, and, I, and I'm looking for the first time at my son, Aryan, who's three years old. And he's able to articulate now, I think kind of, you know, a very new stage right now, his, his really, really his strong hatred and disapproval of the obedience that I'm calling him to. And all the time we have these conversations with Aryan, I say, Aryan, what is obedience? And I want him to have trained him. I've, I've trained him to respond, well, obedience is obeying right away with a cheerful heart. It's with a cheerful heart. Because I'm trying to drive home to him that I love him. That I want what is good for him. The problem is that when I see him obeying me reluctantly with that scowl on his face, the shoulders slumped, you know, kind of walking across to the, to the corner somewhere in anger. Like, that's, I hate that. It's awful. It grieves me. It grieves me to see him respond so poorly. Isaiah 64 verse 4 says, You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. How much more than does God hate it when we simply go through the motions and anything with him? He doesn't want us to have our hands doing one thing while our heart is doing something else. He doesn't want that from us. He wants our hearts. He wants wholeness. He wants purity of heart from us. And here's the thing. I think, no matter who you are here this morning in this theater, I think that we all know it, that we have darkness inside of us, that we have a lack of wholeness. So just stop for a second and look at your heart with me. You know, you may talk about being kind and putting others first and behaving a certain way. You might mostly even act the same way that you talk if you're really good at this stuff. But what's happening in your heart? Can you imagine what would happen if there was a GoPro camera that was somehow like inserted into your chest cavity and, and could look deep into your soul? deep into your desires. And then imagine that in this room right now, uh, imagine this, all of that was broadcast to the screen. Imagine if it was just, if it was just the five minutes, the last five minutes that just happened in this room just now, I think it'd be awful. I think it'd be terrible as we're exposed for what's actually happening inside of us, that we lack wholeness, that there's a darkness in us. You know, Mark Twain, he said this really well. He said, everyone is a moon. And has a dark side, which he never shows to anybody. Isn't that good? Purity of heart has to do with our actions perfectly lining up with the desires of our heart according to what is good, what is beautiful, and what is right. It's willing God's will with all of our being. But when we take a look at ourselves, the problem is that we don't see a rosy picture at all. Actually, I think we're ashamed of what we see. For some of us, it's probably really, really deep shame with what we see, with what's happening inside of our hearts and our desires. And I think when we look at that and we contrast that with what Jesus has called us to, this this purity of heart, I think we just cry out like Job did in the Old Testament in the Bible. He said, can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Cried that out in Job chapter 4 verse 17. And I think it leads us to pray along with David who prayed in Psalm 51 verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Do something in me. Because I see my brokenness. So how can we change? What can be done for people like us? Well, look with me at our second point this morning. Purity created. And to be clear, 
to be really clear, there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can do on your own. This is God's work. Something that he has to do. He has to create purity where previously there was no purity in existence. You see, God, who is pure in securing our salvation, he had to take on human flesh and come to us. So there was a starting place for this work because there wasn't one before. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, he took on human flesh and he came to earth. And we see his glorious purity, the purity of Jesus Christ in action all throughout the accounts of Jesus' life on earth in the Gospels, in the Bible. And what did it look like? How do we see Jesus in his purity? What what did he show us? Well, when we open the, the Bible, we read the gospel stories, we see that Jesus faced temptation in this world as we do. We see that when he was presented with opportunities to pursue things that made sense for him in the moment, things that promised him fulfillment, but that were not in accord with God's good purposes for us as human creatures, that he, he didn't go with those things. He resisted those things. He lived every moment of his life in wholeness of devotion and worship and purity towards God. He was pure and whole, resisting temptation and honoring God completely where we fail. He will God wanted in every area where you and I routinely give in to the darkness that's inside of us. You know, we see this perhaps most clearly, I think, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. So in the chapter before the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 4, uh, where there's this account where Jesus is in the wilderness and he's being tempted as a man by the devil. And in that passage, the devil offers us all kinds of things to pursue uh, in his actions and his heart that are not in faithful loyalty to God. And Jesus resists. He's pure in his heart and his loyalty to God the Father the whole way through. And we read at the end of that account in Matthew 4, verses 8 to 11, we read this. It says, again, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I would give you. He promised Jesus fulfillment and wholeness in the things of this world. But Jesus said, and he said, if you will fall down and worship me. But Jesus said to to Satan, to the devil, he said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And it's Matthew 4, verses 8 to 10. You see, Jesus' devotion and his worship, his commitment to God was absolute. It was 100% for God. The author of the book of Hebrews says this about Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin, without impurity, with complete loyalty and devotion to God where you and I fail. And the thing is, Jesus' devotion to God, it wasn't because he had it easier than we have it somehow. I think we think that sometimes. Like, yeah, but he was Jesus. He had it easier. It wasn't because he had it easier. No, he faced the same temptations and the desires that we face, yet Jesus desired God more than everything he was offered. He had purity of heart. He consistently worshipped and glorified and served and loved and honored God above everything else in his life, every moment of his existence. Jesus loved the character of God who is love. He was devoted to the righteousness of God who is right. And it was reflected in every area of his love, of his life. Guys, this purity is awesome. This purity is what causes Jesus to be so beautiful to us as we read the Gospels. It's what causes us to look at him caring for the blind, caring for the beggar, caring for the prostitute, the sinner, the outcast, the pariah of society, loving them and caring them, caring for them and serving them. 
He didn't look at the outcast like we do and determine to care externally in the moment. Well, then, you know, glancing at his watch the whole time, like, man, I hope I don't miss the game. You know, he didn't care for these people saying, hey, you know, I'd really like to be uh, in a boat with my buddies in the Sea of Galilee. That's, that'd be really cool right now. I don't really want to be here. No, he cared with his commitment of wholeness and purity of devotion to God. And it showed in his love for them. So it caused him to love deeply, to care selflessly, to give generously, to love the things of God and his holiness and his word and his commandments and to live them out in his life. It's beautiful. It presents a compelling picture of the pure one to us. And the thing is, this Jesus, hear this, brothers and sisters, this Jesus can change us. Jesus can change you. He can take you who are impure and he can make you pure. He can work on you. How can he do that? Well, he can do it through his death on the cross and through his resurrection. See, Jesus, the purity of God who was in human flesh, he came to earth and he didn't stay at arm's length from the shame and from the horror of our sin and our impurity. He entered into it. I don't know what you do with impurity or even with a cold. Usually I like trying to stay away. Like if you've got a cold, you've got sickness of some kind, stay away from me. Jesus didn't do that with our impure hearts. He came to us. He was close to us. And he died for us. Through his death on the cross, he even took all of our impurity, all of our sin, and the horrific shame that comes with it, and he took it inside himself to his own person. And he was crushed for us. He bore it on his shoulders. Look at the Apostle Paul's incredible statement about this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. There Paul writes, For our sake... He, that's God, made him, that's Jesus. God made Jesus to be sin. God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't think we comprehend this morning how mind-boggling that is. Jesus, God in human flesh, the only pure human being, he took our shame. He took our guilt, our impurity, our sin. He took it upon himself. He was despised. He was condemned. He was rejected and he was killed in our place. Friends, who would invent this kind of religion? It's not the kind of religion I'd invent. Who would put at the central place this defilement and shaming and crushing of God? Isaiah speaks to this in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. Long before Jesus came, he prophesied. And he said, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. There's a woman named Fleming Rutledge, uh, a theologian and a, and a priest uh, in, in the States. She, she says, reflecting on Isaiah 53, she writes this. It's incredible. She writes, what religious or secular insight would have led anyone at all to foresee a ghastly, exposed, reviled death for God-made flesh? The last thing anyone would have ever imagined, even with Isaiah 53 right in front of them, was a crucified Son of God. And the point that I'm trying to make this morning is that Jesus did it for a purpose. He did it for a purpose. He did it to take on our misery, to take on our shame and our impurity, and to have it crushed with him in his death. So you and I could be raised with Jesus in his resurrection life. 
as new creations. Let me say that again. He did it for a purpose. He did it to take your impurity and the darkness that we've been talking about, have it inside of himself and crushed in our place so that we could be raised with him in his resurrection, newness, and wholeness of life. That's why he did it. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's the promise this morning. That's the hope for us this morning. Listen, friends. Jesus isn't afraid of your impurity this morning. He's not afraid of your impurity. I hope this morning that you're feeling some of the weight of what we're talking about. I hope that you feel that GoPro camera on your soul revealing something about yourself that's deeply uncomfortable. But I hope you do that in a way that that causes you to see this beatitude not as something that's scary, but as something that's an invitation to you to come to Jesus, to come to the one that can change you, resurrect your heart and make you new. You know, behavior modification is never going to work for you. You know why? It's not going to go deep enough. Working on change at this level is not going to change the heart from where that behavior comes from. But Jesus, he can root out the evil that's at the source of that. He can root it out and make us new and replace within us purity of devotion to God, love for him above all else. He can give us new hearts. He can make us pure and whole. But here's the thing. This purity of heart, it isn't an end in and of itself. It's not just like be pure and that's the end of it. No, the beatitude says, blessed are those who are pure in heart in Matthew 5 verse 8, for they shall see God. There's an end to this. There's a reward. We're going somewhere with it. Look at our last point, purity rewarded with me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We should ask, what does it mean to see God? What does that mean? Is that like some kind of 2001 space odyssey type thing going on? Is that what that is? Is it like, you know, Evan the Almighty, you know, seeing God? No, it's not what we're talking about. To see God... Is so much greater than that. To see God is to have intimate knowledge of God and relationship with him. It's to have intimate knowledge of God and relationship with him. But here's the thing. I'm sure some of you are asking right now, sure, Brant, but why do I care? Why do I care? If I'm honest, no offense, Brant. I mean, you're a pastor and all. I, know I, I don't want to offend you, but, but no offense. I'd rather go hiking. I don't want to know God. I'd rather go see a hockey game. You know what? I'd rather buy a pair of jeans from Nordstrom. Like, why does this matter to me? I I don't really care about it. Well, I think that we all care, and I'm going to try and show you why. Remember how we've been talking at the beginning about the way that we're all looking for happiness. We're all searching for satisfaction and for wholeness. We all believe that there's something out there that's going to make us happy, and we actually orient our lives to pursue that thing that will make us happy. But here's the thing. Have you ever found that once you've received the thing that you've been looking for, that you're still not happy? Have you found that the the raise didn't get you what you were looking for? That the new car didn't give you the joy that you wanted? Do you find that the new career didn't satisfy you like you hoped it would? Or the new house? Even the new boyfriend, the new girlfriend, the wife, the husband, the children. None of them are sufficient to give us what we need and to make us happy before God as we were created to be. We're deeply unsatisfied. 
look, I want to say this soberly, but, but we should realize suicide recently overtook vehicular deaths in North America. I don't know if you know that. And I'm no expert, and I really want to be cautious here. I don't want to overstate this. But could it be that part of the reason for this is that we are, in the wealthiest countries in the world, still so unable to attain the satisfaction and the happiness that we're seeking? The Bible teaches us is that that's because any ultimate satisfaction that we're pursuing, that it will never be enough unless it's the ultimate satisfaction of relationship with God. Unless we live for him, delight in him, know him, worship him, glorify him, long for him, praise him above every other goal or purpose or ultimate end in our lives, we'll forever be unsatisfied. We're not going to find it. We've missed the point. See, God is the ultimate. He is the end. He's the goal and point of human existence. And the existence of all things revolves around him and his glory and his goodness. And unless he's at the center of our lives and our hearts, we're not going to be satisfied. We're not going to be fulfilled. And that's why this beatitude is so incredible. Look again at what it says. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see this God. And as a pure in heart, Jesus says, who find the ultimate purpose and meaning of who they're created to be. And this Bible that we're reading from is literally all about this relationship with this God. It's all about it from beginning to end. Throughout the Bible, uh, God uses, as he speaks to his people, this language of marriage. It's it's the analogy, the metaphor that he often comes back to describe uh, his relationship with us. At the beginning of the Bible, we see this marriage in a garden between the first man and woman. At the end of the Bible, there's also a marriage in a garden. The beginning of the Bible was a marriage between man and woman. Yes, but the divorce between God and man. The end of the Bible that we're driving this whole thing towards that God's working to, to fulfill is the marriage between God and man, the reconciliation of us brought into relationship forever with him. It's beautiful. So we're created for. Look at Revelation 21 verses 2 to 4 with me to see this. We quote this passage a lot here, but I want you to notice especially the language of relationship and marriage that it has. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, Coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is where purity of heart is headed. This is where purity of heart is headed. To be with God. To be satisfied in relationship with God. This is the life that we long for, brothers and sisters. You know, Jesus said in John 17, verse 3, he says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The life that we're looking for is found here. This is what it is. And so as we wrap up this morning, I want to I throw something out to you. Just consider this. And the psychiatrist Carl Jung, he once wrote this. He said, people will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing their own soul. 
I hope you face it. I hope you look deep this morning at who you really are. I hope you consider your lack of wholeness and actually your lack of happiness. And I hope you consider those two things so that it would drive you to Jesus. So that it would cause in you a hunger and a thirsting for the one who can satisfy. That you long for the purity that he can give. You come to him needy with arms extended that he'd receive you. You know, he's not afraid of your impurity. He's not. He's not. He receives you where you are. Don't try to clean up yourself beforehand. Just come to him. Just come to him. Let his love transform you by his grace as he gives to you what you would never deserve and could never earn. And as he can make you pure and bring you into relationship with God. So what should people like us, what should we who desire such wholeness and satisfaction, what should we do with this message? Well, I got a couple of thoughts. Number one, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, a lover of Jesus, but if you're interested in what we're talking about, I'd encourage you to read through the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. Pick up a Bible. Maybe start in Matthew. There's four gospel accounts. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Start reading through one of them. And, and even as you read, I'd encourage you to pray. To say, God, would you, would you show me who I really am? It's going to be strange. I know praying is not something you've done before. But just talk to God as if he was sitting next to you. Say, God, show me who you are. Please show me who I am. And please lead me to Jesus to see what we're talking about here this morning. Why are these Christians so pumped up about Jesus? I want to see why. Ask him that. You know, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible around the corner in the back. And we want to give it to you. It's our gift to you. Grab one on the way out. Read about Jesus. You know, if, if you're in that place, please know that we're praying for you. We pray often for those that are coming that don't yet know Jesus in this way. And know that we would be happy to talk with you at any point along your journey. There aren't questions that you can ask that would offend us and scare us. So ask them. Ask them. Ask the person sitting next to you. Get together with me, with Fred, with Jonathan, with somebody else here at the church. Let's talk. Bring your questions and your, your wondering, and we'll talk about it. We're going to walk with you on this journey as you seek to understand this Jesus. Now, on the other hand, now, on the other hand, if you are a follower of Jesus here already, this is a strong, a bit of a strong word, but I want you to realize this. I can't emphasize enough how God is not pleased with our external obedience. He is a good father and he wants your heart. He wants your heart. He doesn't want your evangelism when you don't desire his glory. He doesn't want your service when you love yourself more than your neighbors and more than Jesus. He doesn't want your money when you don't love him more than your wallet. He doesn't want your sacrifice when you don't love his righteousness and his holiness and his beauty more than your hobbies and your careers and your treasures. That's a hard word. Purity of heart is single-minded devotion, is love, is adoration and worship for God. That's tough. That's tough. That's a hard word for us this morning. But as you hear it, as you hear it, I want you to be encouraged in the same breath to realize that we're not a religion of works. <laughs> we're a religion of grace. That what Jesus is asking for isn't perfection. He just wants more of your heart. So come to him. 
Would you come to him? Would you do a couple things as you come to him right now as you're working on this? Would you first consider where God is asking to repent of your sin? What are you keeping in the dark? What are you hiding from the light? What do you know in your heart is separating you from greater devotion to Jesus? He wants you to let that go. He wants you to give that up. Would you give it up for him? Would you come to find life that's in him? Second thing, would you seek Jesus? Would you commit to seeking him in a greater and more urgent way? Seek him in his word. Seek him in prayer. Seek him with brothers and sisters. Commit to praying together. We pray together Tuesday morning, 7 o'clock, 3rd Avenue, Starbucks, 3rd and Burrard. We pray together before the gathering, 9 o'clock to 9.20, to petition God to ask him to do something that we cannot do in our hearts. Would you pray? Would you call out to him? Would you seek him? Would you dwell and delight and remember the good news of his gospel? This all starts with the good news about Jesus Christ, the mercy that he gives to the impure, to receive them, to love them, to embrace them, and to make them new, to give them what they don't deserve out of his love. Come to Jesus. So if you're just convicted like crazy this morning, feel the grace and the love of Jesus for you. Come to him to receive it. Only knowing more of his love will be enough to drive out the love in your heart for other things that's making you impure. Come to him. Dive deep into relationship with God with us this morning. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.